Well, I want to invite you to turn to the fifth chapter of Luke. And as you turn there, just a, a couple of thoughts on what Philippe just shared. Uh, first, we are uh, sending teams to Poland this summer. Uh, our deadline is approaching soon. It's uh, just in a few weeks. And so if you're interested in serving either with a team camp or with that VBS opportunity, uh, make sure to let me know and we can get you the application and all that information. Uh, the second thing is I want to encourage you to, to prayerfully consider uh, partnering with the NERCs and with the ministry they're a part of uh, in, in reaching uh, folks in Poland and reaching folks in the Ukraine now with the gospel. Uh, you may have had an opportunity to meet them last year and talk with them more about that, but if you didn't, I want to encourage you to take that opportunity while they're in the States, uh, talk to them after the service today. Uh, they are able to minister uh, in a full-time capacity there in Poland because of a partnership uh, that people in the States and, and folks really around the world have with them. And it's a unique opportunity that you have to minister there in Poland. And so you, you have a couple of options if God has burdened you for this ministry. One, uh, you can get on a plane tomorrow and move to Poland full-time <laughs> and somehow provide for your own needs as you minister full-time. Or uh, you can partner with them because that's what they're doing. They're, they're there on the ground day in and day out. You know, we have opportunities at church to go for a week or two uh, once a year. And in the last three years, we haven't been able to go. But I'm thankful that they have been there and others with them in Second Baptist Cadence doing this work in the ministry. And it's possible because of our partnership with them and because of the partnership of so many individuals. So I do want to ask you to prayerfully consider being a part of this vital ministry. It's an opportunity to be involved in the, the church worldwide and the work that God is doing and to celebrate the gospel uh, here and to celebrate the gospel there. And that is indeed why we gather each Lord's Day is to celebrate this great gospel work. Uh, work that we see in the scripture. And so hopefully you found your way uh, to the fifth chapter of Luke. If you've been with us in our study of Luke, you know uh, that Luke uniquely in his gospel speaks a lot about the authority of Jesus. In fact, more than any other gospel writer, Luke makes this emphasis that Jesus has all authority. And so we saw this in chapter four, where uh, the enemy, Satan, he, he questions this authority and the wilderness temptation. We saw uh, the people of Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, they rejected his authority, uh, but his authority is very clear. Luke presents that to us, and his authority when he speaks and preaches over the word, his authority over sickness and healing people, his authority over the demonic realm and casting out demons. Uh, last week, as we looked at the beginning of this chapter, uh, we saw his authority uh, in the life of Peter, as Peter was a fisherman. And Jesus goes out in his boat and is preaching from his boat and then miraculously fills Peter's boat with fish to the extent that the boat starts to sink. And as I pointed out last week, this wasn't just because uh, Jesus was a good fisherman and, and knew the right spots. It was a miraculous occurrence and it was a sign of his authority even over nature. And all of those signs of his authority, all those statements of his authority really point us to the text we come to today where we see clearly that Jesus, as the one with authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, uniquely has the authority to cleanse us and to forgive us of sin. And that's the focus Luke provides us with in these two accounts that maybe you've looked at separately before, but we're going to look at them together today because I think that that theme is there in both, in both the cleansing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic. And so we're going to look this morning at Luke 5, verses 12 through 26, and out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read this for us, because this is the inspired word of God given to a doctor named Luke, and this is what he records under that inspiration of the Spirit. 
Luke 5, beginning in verse 12, he writes this of Jesus. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he was withdrawn to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, he was teaching. Pharisees, teachers of the law, were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. When the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. If you would pray with me. Father, we too have seen extraordinary things. And we see them here in your word. We see the testimony and hear the testimony of these things around the world, how you are at work in our moments of crisis and desperation and bringing us the saving faith in Jesus. And Lord, that is a miraculous thing. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do that miracle in lives today, and that you would continue to draw us to salvation, to repentance, to faith, as we consider your word today. We ask you would do this through the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I read recently what I found to be a rather a fascinating account that came out of a crisis. It was on a flight in 1968 that was inbound to New York, and the flight had been a very routine flight. There were not weather issues or unruly passengers. Everything was going according to plan until the plane started to approach the airport. As it got closer, the, the pilots were going through their routine procedure, and things got desperate when they realized the landing gear would not engage. They tried everything they could to get it to engage. They radioed the tower head and said, 
you know, we've got a problem. We can't get the landing gear to engage. The tower then communicated to them that they needed to go into a holding pattern to circle the airport as they made preparations for an emergency landing with no landing gear. And they brought out this foam that they sprayed on the airway. They brought fire trucks and ambulances. They were preparing themselves for the worst. And while they were doing this, the pilot went over the intercom. And you can imagine hearing this announcement. <laughs> he told them that they were having a problem, that the landing gear would not engage, and they needed to brace themselves for sudden impact. And that then, unsurprisingly, filled the cabin with panic, with Tears with cries of desperation as people prepared for this impact. But it didn't really ready them for what they then heard. The pilot came back over the intercom once more and he made the following announcement. He said this, We are beginning our final descent and at this moment, in accordance with international aviation codes established at Geneva, it is my obligation to inform you that if you believe in God, you should commence in prayer. This rule, this code that no one at that point was very familiar with was read out loud because they were at a moment where they had exhausted every resource and they had nowhere else to turn. I'd never heard of that until I read this account, this, this international aviation code, but I have heard of and am familiar with the code that's written on all of our hearts, that in moments of crisis, in moments of desperation, so often we cry out to God. We see this universally. I saw it just a couple weeks ago. Maybe you did. Watching a football game, a player goes down. It's a moment of crisis. And within minutes through social media, people around the world are asking one another to pray. That there's something about this, this moment of crisis, this moment of desperation that, that moves us to suddenly cry out to God. In fact, that may be the story of your faith today. Perhaps you were brought to faith in Christ in a moment of crisis, a moment of desperation. Perhaps you find yourself this morning here in a moment of crisis, a moment of desperation. Maybe a, a crisis in your family, a crisis at work, a health crisis that has brought you to the point where you're willing to seek out God. We see that all the time in our lives. We see it certainly in this text today because Luke brings us to these two separate accounts that really do go together where we find two men who we don't know their names, we don't know their background, we simply know their condition. We know their crisis. One is a man full of leprosy, the other one is a man who's a paralytic. And in both cases... They are so desperate that they come to Jesus. I think there's something for us to learn here in this moment about not only how God works, but what it is he does so often in these moments of desperation because what we see in this passage is that the, the leper needed more than a cure for leprosy. The paralytic needed more than, than a physical healing. And friends, you and I, we, we need more than what we so often are crying out for. 
Many times we're crying out for God to, to make our marriage better, to help us with our children, to, to improve things at work. Maybe we're crying out to God because we are desperate financially and we, we need help. Maybe we're crying out because we got a sudden medical report and now there's a cancer, there's a disease, there's a sickness. And so often those are the things we are asking God to fix. But we need something fixed much deeper than those things. And often it is those things God is using to get our attention that we might see this deeper need we have. And that need is for our soul, our heart to be cleansed, for us to be forgiven of sin. And that's where I believe Luke is pointing us in this passage. So that's what I want us to focus on as we walk through these two accounts, beginning with the first point I've put there in your notes. We see here that our greatest need is to be forgiven. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. Now, Luke takes us there by first introducing us to this man in verse 12 that he says is a man full of leprosy. It says, while Jesus is in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. Now, leprosy is very rare in our culture, our context today, really in our world, and especially in our own nation. There are less than 100 cases of leprosy annually in the United States. And it's not something we really talk about much, we deal with much, but in Jesus' day, it was much more prevalent and it was much more deadly. In fact, it led to death just about every time someone contracted leprosy, but it was a slow death. In fact, one commentator I read said it this way. He said, leprosy might begin with the loss of sensation to some part of the body, and the nerves would come, become affected, then the muscles would begin to waste away, the leper would develop ulcers on their hands and feet. Their hair and eyebrows would fall out and their vocal cords would be ulcerated. And when they then tried to speak, their voices would be raspy and hoarse. Their breathing would be strained. Extremities like ears and noses and fingers and toes would become so infected and diseased that often they would simply fall off. The duration could last 20 or 30 years. It was a kind of death in which a person died by inches. But death was certain. Even in the medieval period, the Middle Ages, if someone became a leper, the priest would bring them to the cathedral, read a burial service over them, because for all intents and purposes, they were as good as dead. It was a death sentence. And that's why we see in passages like Leviticus 13 and 14 that we heard from earlier, these very strict guidelines and how God's people were to deal with someone with leprosy. They were to separate them from among them. They were to stay away from them. For example, we read in Leviticus 13, the, the person with leprosy who has this disease had to make sure everyone knew they had it. So they would wear torn clothes. They would let their hair hang loose. They would cover their upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean, before they would come into any community or near any people. I mean, imagine that. And just before you would walk onto a street, perhaps no one was even close to you, you would have to yell out, unclean, unclean. They were literally the untouchables. And by the time we get to the Gospels and we get to Jesus' day and the, the many years and centuries that had passed from when God gave that law in Leviticus to Jesus is walking on this earth, we find that God's people had added to all of these laws and regulations. There was a lot of superstition around leprosy. There's a great 
fear around leprosy. And so they, they put all types of things out there, legal laws that people had to abide by. For example, if a leper stuck his head inside a house only for a moment, that entire house, including the beams and the ceiling, was considered unclean and had to be vacated immediately. Lepers had to remain 50 feet away from the nearest person, and it was against the law to greet them or to speak to them. In fact, in my study, I learned that the rabbis in Jesus' day taught, quote, leprosy can only be healed by God. And so you can imagine what it would have been for this man whose name we do not know, whose background Luke doesn't really tell us, for this man full of leprosy to approach Jesus. We read about this account in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, but it's Luke the doctor that tells us he was full of leprosy. That indication is that he was in the final stages of the disease. And that tells us something. That tells us that it had been a long time that he had suffered with this. And so you can imagine, speculate, what, what it was like for this man. Now, this man, he didn't grow up with leprosy. He got it at some point. Hey, he grew up with all the thoughts and ambitions that you and I have. He probably dreamed of, of having a good job and having a family. Perhaps the fruition of some of those dreams came about and he fell in love and he got married and maybe he and his wife welcomed a child or two and then one day he noticed kind of a tingling sensation in his fingers. Maybe a numbness set in. His eyebrows, his hair started to come out and soon he realized that he had leprosy. And in that moment, you understand what would have happened to him. He would have been immediately removed from his home, removed from his family, removed from the town and from the city. And he wouldn't just move in down the block. He would be in a camp that was established for lepers. The only other people he could be around were lepers. In fact, the law stated that his family could bring provisions to him, but they had to leave them at a designated place and get away from them before he could even come out to get them. There would be no conversation and certainly no embraces. He would watch his children grow up from a distance. And now Luke tells us he was full of leprosy. His desperation couldn't get any deeper. And it's in this context then that we see, verse 12, that, that he sees Jesus and he falls on his face and he begs him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And he's so desperate, he's disregarding all these laws that have been put in place because he, he's approaching Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us that he shouted out, unclean, unclean, as the law required, but had he done that, you can imagine, everyone would have scattered to get away from him. But not Jesus. Jesus sees him. He hears him. He responds to him. And it's amazing when you consider what it is the leper said and how it is Jesus responded. In that passage we heard in Leviticus 14 earlier, it, it didn't say anything about how a person could be healed because only God could heal. Even the rabbis taught that. Only God could heal leprosy. And it didn't really even say exactly how they would be cleansed. The rabbi, the priest's job was only to state and declare that they were cleansed after they went through this ceremonial process that they verified that they appeared to be healed, but they had no power to heal them. 
And so you would imagine for this man in his desperate state that the first thing he would have said to Jesus is, Jesus, can you heal me? <laughs> can you bring feeling back to my hands? Can, can you cure me of this disease? I mean, that's what we pray for so often, isn't it? That list on the back of your bulletin, the prayer needs so often we write on these prayer cards and, you know, this person's sick and this person's in the hospital and if you pray that they are healed and pray they are healed and pray that God would make them better and, and we should pray for these things. You've prayed this for me, I've prayed this for you. But that's not our greatest need. And I think there's a sense here where perhaps this man is understanding or at least Luke wants to point us this direction that that wasn't his greatest need. He didn't ask to be healed he didn't even ask Jesus anything. He has faith and understands this is the Christ. And if it's His will, this will happen. That's why He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. <laughs> moves right past the healing, moves right past all those stipulations in that process. Simply says, Jesus, if you will it, you can cleanse me, you can purify me. And then verse 13, it's, it's amazing. Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. <laughs> Just think about that for a moment. In this culture, in this context, it was illegal for someone to touch a leper. Jesus, in previous and healings we'll see after this, he doesn't have to touch someone to heal them. In fact, there are accounts we see in the Gospels where Jesus does something miraculous for somebody who he doesn't even see. They're not even around him. They're back in another house. But with his word, they are healed. I mean, Jesus could have healed this man from the 50 feet he had to stay away from him. He could have done this however he chose to. For him to touch the leper in the eyes of that religious community would immediately declare Jesus to be unclean. So now you have the unclean leper and you have the unclean rabbi. That's not what happens, is it? Luke tells us that Jesus stretches out his hand. He touched him. That the context, even that word touch, is that he, he embraces him. Saying, I will be clean. And immediately, miraculously, the leprosy, it leaves him. It's an amazing thing. And it becomes clear, I believe, as we look at the next account with the paralytic. But, but what's taking place here is something much deeper, much more profound, much more significant than a physical ailment going away. That, that word cleanse means he, he, he purified him. He tells him to, to go about the process, to go through, to make the offering. But in that moment, before any of that happens, this man is cleansed, he is made new. And I believe Luke here is pointing us towards a, a greater issue that becomes clear with the paralytic. It points towards a greater need in the leper's life, in your life, in my life. And that need is to be forgiven. You see, if Jesus was just focused on healing the physical issues here, he heals this leper, he heals others, he heals the paralytic, but the paralytic who gets up and walks and leaves his mat one day would lie back down on the mat and never get up because he's going to die. I mean, the leper 
who's close to the point of death and is cleansed and is healed. And at this point, he's going to go through the process. Then he can go back to his family and all that could take place. One day, he's going to die. I mean, if, if God answered everything you asked for today in this moment, and he healed every sickness in your life and every sickness in the life of your loved ones and, and everything like that was just gone and over with, you are still going to die. There's a greater need we have than to be physically healed. There's a greater need we have than for our marriage to improve. There's a greater need we have than for our homes to be restored and our kids to be okay. There's a greater need we have than for this deal to work out at work or for this financial debt to be paid. There are far greater needs. And so often what God does in our lives when the landing gear doesn't come down is he uses our desperation to point us to that greater need. And here that greater need is forgiveness. And that points us to the second point because number two, we see clearly here that Jesus is the one who uniquely has authority to forgive sin. And so this is the need they had. This is the need we have. And Jesus is the one who can meet that need. And we see that clearly here. So the man full of leprosy is cleansed. And then Jesus says, verse 14, he charged him to tell no one but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, this, this may seem like an odd thing to us, you know, I mean, isn't the whole point for people to learn about Jesus? And here Jesus tells them to tell no one. But there's a context to this. And I think it's, it's clear here and in other parts of the Gospels that, that at this point in the ministry of Jesus, if, if this man goes and tells everyone, then, then things are going to get so intense that Jesus won't be able to go back into these cities and minister. He's going to have to stay in the desolate places because he just gets mobbed. And actually, that's exactly what happens here. And in fact, you can read in Mark's Gospel the same account that the healed man, quote, healed man went, quote, went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places. And where do we find him next? In desolate places. <laughs> I'll admit, when I read that and considered that this week in my study, I was convicted. Because here you have a man told, don't tell anyone about Jesus, and he tells everyone about Jesus. And where are we today, church? We're in a time when Jesus has told us to tell everybody about him, and so often we tell nobody. Perhaps that convicts you as well. But what we see here is this man does tell, and so this report Luke tells us, it spreads about him. A broad, great crowds gather to hear him and to be healed but he would have to withdraw to these desolate places. Now, certainly he did that to pray, but part of it was the practicality of he just couldn't enter into these places. It was so mobbed. And even in the desolate places, this would happen, as we see in continuing in this passage. Luke tells us, verse 17, on one of those days, he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. Now, I think this is connected as well with Jesus' words to the leper who had been cleansed because he told him to go and to present himself to follow the law of Moses. Jesus wasn't contradicting the law. He said, go make your offering. And I think part of that was, this is going to prompt an investigation. These religious leaders, this religious community, you don't have people healed of leprosy showing up right and left. 
This was a unique event. And so there's going to be an inquiry. There's going to be curiosity. These rabbis and teachers of the law and Pharisees, they're going to want to know. Now, now exactly what happened again? Remember what they taught. Only God can heal the leper. And you're saying some rabbi declared you clean? That's what we do after you do all these things. That's a declaration, not an actual cleansing. And so then Luke places it right here, I think, for us to clearly see. Now Jesus is teaching, and who's the mob around him? It's certainly people wanting to be healed, but in this specific uh, situation he addresses in verse 17, it's the inquiry, it's the Pharisees, it's the teachers of the law. They, they're there to investigate Jesus. Well, this doesn't change Jesus' plan at all, because he's going to continue in the work that God's called him to. But they are looking on him, and they are... As in essence, policing him. You see, in the, the time that we've spoken of leading up to Luke's gospel, those silent years between the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, I've pointed out many times already that there were hundreds of years we call the silent years because there was no new word from God. There was no prophet of God. There was no word from God. That silence is broken with the announcement of the birth of Jesus. But during that time when God had been silent to his people, the Pharisees had not. The teachers of the law had not. In fact, what they did during this period of time is they came up with all types of additions and stipulations to the law. In essence, they took it upon themselves to say, well, if God's not speaking, we will. And what God has said, we need to interpret. So, for example, God says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. We're going to give you hundreds of ways you have to do that. And so they came up with minute little details for keeping the Sabbath. So, for example, if, if you're going to keep the Sabbath and not work on the Sabbath, they had exact measurements of what you could lift up with your hand before they considered it to be work. You lift up this much, you're breaking the Sabbath. If you only lift this much, you're not. And they had hundreds of these. And what they then needed was people to enforce this law, and that's much of what the Pharisees did. In fact, Josephus, that ancient Jewish historian, tells us that during the time of Christ, there were as many as 6,000 Pharisees whose full-time job was to make sure the people were obeying not just God's law, but their law. So that gives you a little context about what's happening here. They're there to make sure Jesus is abiding by their rules stipulations and to prepare for a legal case against him when he's not. And so here they are. This is the setting. And then Jesus tells, or Luke tells us there's this group of men who bring their paralyzed friend. Again, this is a whole other story that we don't know anything about. <laughs> we don't know how this man became paralyzed. We don't even really know anything about the paralyzed man because Luke's focus here seems to be on the people who brought him to Jesus. You'll notice when Jesus heals him, he doesn't really say anything about his faith. It's the faith of the friends who brought him to Jesus. Now, there's an obstacle, Luke says, in bringing him to Jesus because there's such a mob there. There's all these religious teachers. There's this inquiry. They're so surrounding Jesus and crowding Jesus that they can't even get in there to Jesus with their friend. 
And so they go up on the rooftop. This rooftop would have been very different than our rooftops. This would have been a rooftop that even people would have lived on. It would have been open air. It would have been floored with tiles and all types of mud and debris material. And so the scripture says they're basically just removing that, digging that away, because they want to lower their friend to Jesus in hopes that he might be healed. Now, again, it helps us to consider the context here that the paralytic would have been just as much of an outcast as the leper. In Jesus' day, it was a common teaching among the rabbis and the religious community that, that sickness was a result of sin. And in fact, they had a saying, the greater the sickness, the greater the sin. And we see this in the Gospels. Perhaps you remember that account in John chapter 9 where the disciples are with Jesus and they encounter a man who the scripture says was blind from birth, and you remember what their question is? Is he blind because of his sin or his parents' sin? Now maybe you've read that before and you thought, well, what kind of question is that? But this was what they were taught. The greater the sickness, the greater the sin. He's been blind from birth. His parents, they did some partying back in the day. They were great sinners for their child to be born with this affliction. Or maybe it's his affliction because of something he did. Sin resulted in sickness in their eyes. In fact, this was quite remarkable when I read it. One rabbi whose writings have survived the centuries wrote this, No one gets up from his sickbed unless his sins are forgiven. And so that's the context. So you can imagine these religious leaders, these teachers, they're sitting there, they're listening to Jesus, but not really listening to be inspired or taught or encouraged by Jesus, not really thinking about their sin or their issues. They just want to trip him up. They want to catch him saying they're doing the wrong thing. And then they're sitting there, and you can imagine, you know, pieces of the ceiling start to crumble. <laughs> this hole opens up in the ceiling. They look up and this man on a bed who's paralyzed starts getting lowered down in front of Jesus. Well, it's like the leper just walked in. They didn't want to be around that. Why? This is a great sinner. I mean, this guy, really a bad sinner. He can't even get up off that mat. He has to be cared for 24-7 by other people. He really is under the judgment of God. We don't want to have anything to do with him. What happens? The friends lower this man down before Jesus. Jesus sees their faith and says to the man, Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, you've got to understand it. If Jesus is not God, then this is the most blasphemous thing he could do. In fact, these religious leaders, Pharisees, teachers of the law, they would have been within their legal rights at that point to drag Jesus out of that house, take him outside of town, and beat him to death with stones for blasphemy. Because no one can forgive but God alone. That's the very point they make here. But if he is God, he has all authority to forgive sins. And what Luke is clearly showing us in this passage that he indeed is God. And therefore, he has this authority. 
Verse 22, Luke tells us that Jesus then perceives their thoughts. <laughs> I thought about that, you know. I, I can guess your thoughts. I would imagine some of you right now are looking at your watch thinking, does he know what time it is? I've already got family that went to the first service. They're at Cracker Barrel right now. Is he going to land this plane? Is he having a problem with the landing gear going down? I can guess you're thinking that. Partially because you leave your bulletins behind and you write those very things on them to one another. I can tell you who's better at tic-tac-toe than others and hangman and other things I don't want to tell you. So just take those bulletins with you. But the point is this. I don't know what's in your mind and you don't know what's in mine. And I'm thankful for that personally. But Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. Jesus knows exactly what you and I are thinking right now. He didn't wait for the question to be answered. He, he perceives it and he answers them. Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or say rise and walk. But here's the point of all of it. But that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that's exactly what happened. And they glorified God. You have the authority, Jesus. That's the point of all this. And so let's let's put down the landing gear and land this. Listen. The greatest need this man had was not to get out of that bed and go home. The greatest need the leper had was not to be cleansed and healed of his leprosy. The greatest need that you have and I have is not the felt need that we think is our greatest need. The greatest need we have is to bow before Jesus and confess Him as Lord. That we might be forgiven and we might be cleansed. He has this authority because He is the Lord's Christ. And that's our final point, number three. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin because He is the Lord's Christ. And so fast forward a few chapters. You get to Luke chapter 7. And here's John the Baptist. And we'll get there and we'll talk more about it. But John the Baptist, if you remember, John... He's the forerunner. He's the one telling everybody about the Messiah. He, he's essentially going to be the right-hand man to Jesus. And at this point, he is in prison, and he's about to be beheaded. And he is wondering and questioning, <laughs> because this isn't how he likely thought things would go. And he gets to the point that he has two of his disciples go to Jesus, and he asks him the question, are, are you really him? Are you really the one that we've been waiting for, or do we need to wait for somebody else? You remember what Jesus says to him? The first thing he does in front of those disciples come and ask this question, he just turns around and heals people. <laughs> I mean, just right there, he just shows them, he just heals people. And then he turns to them and he says this, Go tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. You don't need to wait for anybody else, John. And friends, you don't need to wait for anything else today. There's nothing else to wait for. Jesus indeed is the Messiah. He is the Lord's Christ. He has come 
to seek and to save the lost. He has the authority and the power right here, right now, to cleanse you and to make you. And unlike so many, he's not pushing you away. You're not an outcast. He says, come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, and he uniquely can give you that rest. The question is, will you come to him today? And that is the question to consider now as we come into this time of response. If you would stand together as I pray for us.